Good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Dae Kim. I am the pastoral resident here at Cornerstone. And what that means is that I'm friendly and approachable. Um, it also means that I'm not well-dressed because I don't have a blazer. Um, well, if you haven't been with us, we've been going over the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches uh, of Revelation. And we're studying the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation because um, as a church, so that as a church we can be blessed by even one of the most confusing or taboo or headachey books of the Bible. I like to think of it as being balanced in our spiritual um, biblical diet. If the Old Testament is the seasoning that goes into the preparation of our meal, and if the Gospels are the meat of our meal, and the, and the epistles, the Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, if those are the veggies on our plate, then what is Revelation, you may ask? I think Revelation, it, this is my take on it, but I think Revelation is that triple milk chocolate fudge brownie that you look at the end of the meal and you say, should I go for it or should I not? <laughs> it, it looks very heavy. <laughs> it, it sounds interesting, but um, I need to use a little caution and restraint here. Uh, all to say that Revelation, the book of Revelation, can be sweet, but it can also be heavy. If consumed properly um, and in moderation, it can elevate the dish or and the whole meal experience, or it can just straight up put you in a food coma and unable to leave home for the next hour. <laughs> but my hope and prayer is that as we go through this series, this will be a door that will open the book of Revelation to you at home. It will be a book that it will be accessible. It will be a book that won't be intimidating anymore, but rather, by encouraged by the Spirit of God, may you be able to uh, be nourished by God's Word, and even in this complex book. And may you also, for some of us, we grew up with, when we, grew, when we hear Revelation, we hear brimstone and fire, and God's judgment and wrath. But my hope is that as we go through the series, you may find the sweet encouragement of Jesus Christ at the end of the letter and throughout the book, who desires to bless you and not curse you. So church, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Revelation chapter 2, and let's listen to what God has to say to us this morning. Our text comes from Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. If you do not have your Bibles, it will be up there on the screen for you. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we're here and we long to hear from you. We know that sometimes our ears are closed and without, apart from you, Father, we can know nothing. Father, we pray that as our minds are weak to grasp the gospel on their own and as our hearts are sometimes dead, may your spirit make us alive so that your words may not fall on deaf ears. But may your words take root. May they grow in us love for you. So Spirit, we invite you to come and convict us of your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a quick recap if you haven't been with us. We began our series looking at the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a cold church. She was all doctrine and no love. Last week, we looked at the church of Thyatira, who was a truthless church. She was all love and no truth. Pergamum is like the middle child. She did not completely abandon doctrine, nor did she completely lose her love. What kind of church was she? Well, Pergamum was actually a church of compromise. She wasn't like Thyatira, who tolerated all sin, Nor was she like Ephesus, who forgot Christ as a person. But nevertheless, the church of Pergamon was actually an unbalanced church in her quest to be a balanced church. She was a compromising church. And our gospel point this morning can be summarized like this. Jesus gives us purpose to be faithful in the extraordinary and in the mundane of our lives. Jesus gives us purpose to be faithful in the extraordinary and in the mundane moments of our lives. I would like to explore three things going on in this passage with you with the time that I have. First, the encouragement of martyrdom. The encouragement of martyrdom. Secondly, the high call of the mundane. And thirdly, the invitation to feast. Originally, I named this uh, sermon this morning, uh, Faithful to Death. But that sounded really extreme, so I thought, what's more encouraging? So I changed it to invited to feast, because every time I'm invited to feast, I feel encouraged. So I was invited to feast. So three points this morning. Let's um, let's look at the first one. The encouragement of martyrdom. The letters, for the most part, they follow a pattern. They follow the introduction by Jesus. They follow a um, specific manner or situation. Jesus presents himself with a title. Then he goes to the commendation. He mentions things that the church is doing well. Then he moves to a rebuke, that which Jesus has against the church. And the letter concludes with an exhortation or encouragement to persevere in the faith with a reward in sight. In this letter, Jesus presents himself as the one who has the two-edged sword. Now, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but this is an image of a judge. Whether this is good news or bad news, it really depends on which side of the judgment you're on. But I want to draw your attention to verse 13, because I think it's very interesting. Um, Verse 13 reads this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Unlike what we've seen in the church of Ephesus and Thyatira and some of the other churches, Jesus doesn't say, I know your works. Instead, he says, I know where you dwell. 
He doesn't say, I know what you did. He says, I know where you live. And where do they live? Jesus has two names for the city. He calls it where Satan's throne is and also where Satan dwells. And to understand why Jesus essentially calls this city Satan's city, we have to know a little bit about the history of the city of Pergamum. If Ephesus was the equivalent of Las Vegas or New York City, Pergamum was the equivalent of Washington, D.C. And there are a few reasons for that. First, Pergamum was the headquarters of the Roman government at the time. This was a very influential city. All the decisions about the empire and where the empire should go took place at Pergamum. Secondly, Pergamum had that one thing we all love about Washington, D.C., crowds and tourists. Um, Just like thousands of people flood to Washington, D.C. to look at the monuments erected in honor of our nation's history and our leaders, Pergamum was the place to go if you wanted to see the statues of the emperor. Because the city was a city that stressed emperor worship. So much so that if you lived in other cities around Asia Minor at the time, emperor worship would have only taken place maybe about once a year or so. In Pergamum, the likelihood is that it happened uh, once every month, or some suggest twice every month. So not only was it more frequent, but it was more enforced. If anybody refused to worship the emperor in Pergamum, the likelihood that you will be put in jail was more likely. Thirdly, Pergamon was, high, was a highly educated city. During that time, it boasted one of the biggest libraries uh, in, the, in the known world with 200,000 plus books. And you may say, that's not a lot. Well, you have to take into consideration that they did not have iPads or uh, keyboards or even typewriters. Everybody had to write it by hand. You had to write carefully, and if you messed up one letter, you throw away the whole parchment. And finally, just like Washington, boasts it, Washington, D.C. boasts itself to be a city of freedom, of free speech, of acceptance, Pergamum was a home to polytheism. It was a center of worship for Zeus, Athene, Dionysius, and Asclepius. And what's really interesting for us here is that Asclepius was the god of healing and the most popular god worshipped at the city of Pergamum. He was often referred to as savior. And in homage to him, the people of Pergamum, they would build this huge temple where people all over the world, they would come to the temple of Asclepius and they would lay down on the floor and wait until the serpents that filled the temple would crawl over and all throughout their bodies because they believed that Asclepius, the god, uh, was his symbol, his animal was a serpent. And which could have added as to why Jesus calls this city the city of Satan, because you have all these people worshiping the image of a serpent. And the symbol is actually still adopted today by the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Now, imagine with me just for a second that you are a Christian at Pergamum. I mean, this was a harsh place to live as a Christian. See, Christians who refused to worship the emperor would have been violently persecuted and brought to charges of rebellion. You're a traitor in the city. Also, you lived in a society where the government itself was against you. See, if you wanted to lease a place to have worship, your application would never make it through. If anybody found out that you were a Christian, your business and your, and your livelihood could be at stake. 
Imagine you're a parent, a Christian parent of Pergamum, sending your kids to school. That would have been very, very anxious. It would have given you anxiety whether they're okay, if they're being bullied or if they're making fun of. And if anybody found out that you did not worship the God Asclepius, if, you, if somebody found out that you prayed to Jesus for health and not Asclepius, your well-being would also be at stake because they would see that as, trying, as you trying to undermine the popularity of the city, the fame of the city. Despite the harsh conditions of the church of Pergamum, the church miraculously still managed to survive. And in verse 13, Jesus' words give hope to, this, to the pains and the sufferings the church is going through. And he says this, I know where you dwell. Meaning that Jesus is not unaware of the pains and sufferings that his people are going through. He does not minimize hardship, nor does he sanitize the pain. See, Jesus is a God who is able to sympathize with persecution because he himself underwent persecution, suffering, and death. But also, this is an encouragement because Jesus is saying this, that it's no accident that the church was placed there. Can you imagine if you're from Pergamon wondering, why in the world would God start a church here? See, there is, Jesus is saying, there is no mistake. I know where you dwell. It wasn't poor planning or an oversight or maybe even a shot in the dark by God, hoping that things will grow. But the church exists in Pergamum because it is God's will. And we're told that Jesus commends the church for her resilience, even faith, on to death, in the midst of death. This church was ready to die for Jesus. This church was ready to be faithful in extraordinary things for Christ. In fact, actually someone did, Antipas. We don't know much about who Antipas was besides the fact that he was a member of this church and he lost his life because he would refuse to worship the emperor. Some accounts actually tell us about how Antipas died. He, didn't, he was not put to death in private, but actually he was put on public display. Some accounts tell us that he was put inside an iron bowl and uh, the Ro- Roman authorities, they torched him inside so to make an example of anybody who would dare to, to preach the gospel, to be a Christian in this city. Now, imagine, just a little further with me, imagine you knew Antipas, right? Imagine you knew Antipas. He was, he was in your CG community group. Maybe he was in your journey group. He was the guy that everybody wait, uh, waited for because he would bring the snacks, right? He would bring the fruit tray or the vegetable tray or the cookies from BJ's that everybody likes. He was the one who was funny and he cracked jokes and he was witty and everybody loved having him there. Imagine you knew Antipas and you're waiting for your snacks one day and he doesn't show up. And then you wonder... What happened? Maybe you wonder he got sick. Maybe you think he couldn't make it this one night and you wait another week and he doesn't show up. And now you try to reach him and you, as you try to reach him, you get a hold of his wife or a friend that, that lives with him or knew him and you ask, where is he? Where is he? And they tell you, oh, haven't you heard? He was killed for his faith. What will go through your mind? 
what would go through your mind when, you, if you heard that? Would you, would you think, do they also have my name? We were in the same community group. <laughs> like, did they check his records? Like, my name is probably in there. He knows me too. What will go through your mind? In fact, church, what goes, what goes through your mind every time you hear stories about missionaries or civilians or Christians who have died for not denying their faith? If, if I'm honest with you all, every time I hear about a Christian who gives their life for, the, for their gospel, for faith, it tremendously encourages my heart. But at the same time, I have to confess, what goes through my mind is, am I ready for that? Would I do that too? Do I have that kind of faith? On October 1st, 2015, a gunman entered a classroom in Umpqua Community College. I don't know if you remember that incident. And witnesses report that your life, if you were in the same room with this gunman, your life depended on how you answered this one question, which was, are you a Christian? See, the gunman asked that whoever was a Christian that they should stand up. And then he went, to, he went to each one of them and asked, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, the gunman would proceed to shoot them in the head. And if they said no, or they refused their faith, he would shoot them in the leg and let them live. You know, we read stories like this. And when we read that some actually died for their faith and refused to deny Christ, even with a gun on their head, it encourages tremendously. It's encouraging for the community of faith. But at the same time, it makes us wonder, doesn't it? What would I have done? Am I ready to die for my faith? And as Christians in America, we have the privilege of religious freedom, and our life is not in immediate danger today. Because of our faith. And I like our brothers and sisters around the world, not many Americans today are called to die for their faith. They're not called, we're, not everyone in America is called to die for the gospel. But consider just this with me for one second. Although not everyone in America is called to die for their gospel, called to give their life for the gospel, consider this. Everyone, if you're a Christian, you are on call to give your life for the gospel. There is no, I am exempt from martyrdom. You're not the one who knows or decides where you dwell. See, Jesus knows your fate and how dangerous it can be for Christians to forget that you're actually on call. You may not be on call, you may not be called to die for the gospel, but every single Christian is on call. And ready to give your life for Christ. See, the Christians at Pergamum, despite the news of Antipas, something amazing is that they walked the pattern of a crucified Savior. See, they knew that to follow Jesus meant that their lives were on call. And in fact, because they knew this, at the news of Antipas, instead of shrinking back, instead of denying the faith, they were not surprised or caught off guard but they rose to the occasion. And Jesus commends them for being courageous and steadfast. Friends, Cornerstone, church, what about us? Is your faith following the pattern of a crucified Savior, or do you live in a bubble that you're safe and you're exempt and you don't have to think about giving up your life for Jesus? 
See, martyrdom is not reserved for extraordinary Christians, but rather is for ordinary people who place their faith in an extraordinary God. It's for ordinary people who've experienced ordinary love. And when we read stories about people willing to give their lives for the gospel in extraordinary circumstances, those are the stories, really, that really encourage the community of faith. Practically speaking, practically speaking, church, is your money on call for Jesus? Or is it on standby for yourself? Is your free time on call for Jesus? Or have we turned off our hearts thinking that we're, not, we're exempt from serving? Is your comfort on call for Jesus, ready to, to take up arms for the sake of the gospel, to be uncomfortable, to tread in mud so that we can preach the gospel to those who don't know? Or is your comfort on call? On another practical note, a good way to remind ourselves that our lives are always on call for Jesus is to read biographies of missionary accounts or or fellow uh, Christians, brothers and sisters who lost their life for the gospel and to remind ourselves that martyrs did not know something extra about the Christian faith. They They didn't know something extra about God. They just knew him deeply. And as you read and reflect on their lives, may you begin praying the dangerous prayer to know God deeply. See, let me ask a question. Church, where would a fearless faith take you? How would you serve God more differently today if, you, if the fear of death or uncomfort was not a factor? If your life was actually on call? So that's the first point, and it's worth thinking about. Is my life on call for the gospel? Is my life on call for Jesus? Because martyrdom, giving your life for the gospel, is either foolish or encouraging, and that depends on whether you believe you're exempt or always on call. It's not that we all draw straws, hoping that we draw the, the long one, and the person next to us gets the short one and says, ha, better you than me. Every Christian is to be on call for Jesus. But secondly, Jesus in verse 14 has has something against this church. That in their lofty service, they forgot the high calling of the mundane. Which leads us to our second point. Look at verse 14 with me if 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 you can. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. See, Jesus commends them for excelling in extraordinary circumstances. Pergamum was was a church that was willing to give their life for the gospel, but the church had failed, utterly failed in their ordinary, everyday faithfulness. Now, we have to ask ourselves, who is Balaam and who is Balak? There's this incident in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, that as Israel is leaving, uh, is walking through the desert in, uh, in, from Egypt in their exodus, and they're passing through the land of Moab, that the king of Moab, he was afraid that as they passed, the Israelites might conquer them. So what does he do? He goes to a guy named Balaam, and Balaam is a prophet for hire. So he goes to him and tells, and tells him, listen, If you curse the Israelites, 
If you utter a curse for them, I'll give you a lot of money. So Balaam, because he loved money, and this was, you know, this was a good job for him, he would get up on a, on a hill, and as the Israelites are passing through the land, he would, he would get up and try to utter a curse on the people. But every time he tried to curse them, God's Spirit intervened and shielded that curse and turned it into a blessing. And Balaam tried this four times, and four times he was unsuccessful. So what does he do? He still wants the money, so he changes tactics. He goes to the king and says, you'll never be able to curse them like this. You'll never be able to bring the downfall of Israel like this. Let me teach you how. Seduce them. Don't fight them. Seduce them. Put something in their everyday life so that they forget that they're called to live a life of faithfulness. So the church of Pergamum was resistant against persecution, but they left their guard down at home. See, the church was persistent when the holiday came to worship the emperor, and they said, we will not bow down to any other god except our god, but on any other day, they engaged in sacrifices to idols and sexual promiscuity. The church may have promoted sexual purity in the church, but at work, they would just let themselves go. They would indulge. Now, you have to pause here and ask yourself, what is going on here? How can a church that is willing to die for the gospel, that puts their life on the front lines of the gospel, compromise in such little things, everyday life? How is that possible? Here's how it's possible. The church of Pergamum had a skewed view on when faith mattered. See, when was it important to be a Christian? They would say, certainly when the church was under attack. We need to band together and hold fast. But at home, when you go to work, in the mundane moments of your life, faith was not important. When you're at school, faith not important. And this is somewhat still the case today that we diminish the importance of everyday life. Let me give you an example. Cody DeListrati, who's an American writer for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The New Yorker, he writes this interesting article called The Value of Remembering Ordinary Moments. And he's not a Christian, by the way. And in this article, Cody observes that a person's life is actually predominantly mundane. It's filled with small talk. It's filled with talks about the weather and how we have 76 degree weather and today and tomorrow we don't know. It'll be 80 or 90 depending and we still mention it to the person so it's not awkward. It's filled with passing thoughts of I'm hungry now. What am I going to eat for dinner? And what am I going to eat tomorrow for lunch? Or when is this preacher going to stop preaching? And we we have all these mundane passing thoughts and Cody Delistrati demonstrates that people tend to diminish the importance importance of the mundaneness of life only to find only to find that later the mundane is actually very highly significant and has much to say about who we are today he says something interesting he says only a few people in the world actually record everything in their everyday life because they feel like the mundane is not relevant it's not relevant to who they are in other words it does in other words he's saying this Look, you may not remember what you ate two weeks ago on a Wednesday afternoon. But what you do know is that what you ate on that Wednesday afternoon affected how your body was shaped later, wasn't it? I mean, certainly if I start eating burgers today, I'll look like a burger in three weeks. 
See, it matters. You may not remember what you ate, but it does shape you. You may not remember three weeks, the meal you had three weeks ago, but it does shape you. Cody DeLestrati is describing to us what scripture actually calls sanctification. See, the Christian life is not always filled with revivals and retreats and church services and mission trips or other church events. The Christians seldom, um, see, the Christian life is not filled with those things, but and Christians seldom look to the mundane of life as meaningful in their growth. See, what you do today after you go home and how you live out your faith, that actually matters because it will shape your spiritual life tomorrow. The Christians at Pergamon believed the teachings of the Nicolaitans who said that you can worship God in special circumstances. Do that. Hold fast to your faith and to your life and to giving your life for Christ. But on normal days, you can indulge in sin. See, the Nicolaitans, whom Jesus hates, we know that from the church letter to the Ephesians, they pretty much said this, look how awesome you're being for your faith. Look how awesome you're living for Jesus Christ. Look how awesome you're withstanding persecution. Go, good you. Go f- good for you. Pat yourself in the back. But now it's okay to indulge in sin. See? It's okay to let yourself go at home. It's okay to let yourself go at work. It's okay to go back angry and take it out on your family at home because something happened at work. It's okay to indulge in sexual sin in the world because look how awesome you're being for Jesus Christ. Meaning that the church of Pergamum compromised how you live in every moment of their lives because they felt like it doesn't matter. But church, it matters. See, it matters how faith influences the way you work, the way you treat people, the way you engage or refrain from certain activities of the world. See, because sanctification happens most in the mundane because most of our lives are filled with the mundane. And because the church of Pergamum forgot this truth, the church was quick to compromise. And what did they begin to do? They began to bargain with God. See, they would say to God, we stood for faith. We gave our lives for the cause. Now, Jesus, let me, ha- let me indulge in this. Don't take this away from me. We gave our lives for the gospel. It's okay if we indulge in sexual purity. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's a daily thing. It doesn't matter how we act. Cornerstone, have we also forgotten this truth? When does faith matter to you? Is there an inconsistency in how you behave on Sundays and at church from how you behave at home and at work? Do Christian values infiltrate your mundane or is it the other way? Do Christian values infiltrate your Sunday life at church? Or to put it another way, in what ways do you bargain with God? What kind of deals do you make with God to excuse your life of sin? See, at church, you may be known to be a jolly person, but at home, your family never sees you smile. At church, you may be known to be a generous person, but in private, you actually keep a record of who who owes you what and how much. Maybe you take a picture. At church, you're known to serve and give your time faithfully, but at home, you shut yourself from your family by watching TV and looking at your phone. At church, you shock people with grace, how gracious you are. 
But how often do you shock this, your, your spouse, your, your kids, or your coworkers with the same grace? If you're a parent, you have one of the hardest jobs in the world. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you arguably have the hardest job in the world. And parents, you might agree with this, that it's hard for, to live out Christian values in the workplace, but sometimes it's 50 times harder to live out the same Christian values at home day in and day out with your children. And if you're not a parent and you, uh, yet, isn't it true that it's hard, to sh- it's hard enough to show Christian forgiveness to our friends, but it's sometimes 10 times harder to forgive our parents for something they've done. See, the Church of Pergamum looked at their mundane and said, faith is not relevant. But Jesus speaks otherwise because in verse 16, he says this, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. See, for Jesus, the battleground is not only in the extraordinary things of our lives, but it's in the mundane. The battleground is in the mundane. And Jesus is reminding the Christians of Pergamum that you don't get to decide when and where you're a Christian. Neither do you get to decide which parts of your life belong to me. I claim you as a whole. I'm working in your life now. Church, ask yourself this question. Where, where are the areas of your life that you've compromised and actually decided to start bargaining with Jesus? Do you bargain with Jesus in your tithes? Maybe you gave a substantial amount, of, amount to the church and you say, I'm good. I'm, I don't have to tithe until 2020. Do you bargain with Jesus on your relationships? Maybe you were the one to, after a fight with your spouse, you were the one to say, I'm sorry. And now you say, well, I did it last time, Jesus. I was the one who initiated the reconciliation. Now it's their turn. It's not fair that I have to do this all the time. Do you bargain with Jesus in your sexual purity? Maybe you're saying, I'm faithful to my spouse. I can look at whatever comes out on the screen. I mean, I'm not going to leave my spouse. Jesus, Jesus, just let me indulge in this. Or maybe in your dating relationship, in your dating life, saying that I stayed single for a long time and now it doesn't matter whether the person I date is Christian or non-Christian. Jesus, let me have this one thing. Didn't I give you my purity for 20 plus years? Do you bargain with Jesus in your role at home to be kind, gentle, and loving, and joyful? Maybe you're saying, I just sat through a 45-minute sermon and I'm going home, and Jesus, I just gave you 40, 40 minutes of my patience and, and attention. It's okay if I'm impatient with my children if they want to tell me a story, right? How about this one? Do you bargain with Jesus on your health? See, we live in an age where health has become an entitlement rather than a gift. And, actually, and there's this uh, doctor called Bob Cotillo who wrote this um, fascinating book called Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age. And he says this, that people these days, whether you're a Christian or not, we tend to look at health as a possession rather than as a gift. And he says the way you know, the way you know that you look at gift as a possession and not as a gift is that you're always complaining about it. And that you always come back to God and say, why, why this? My whole life, I was faithful to you, and you're giving me this diagnosis, or you're giving me this chronic disease. You're not, a, you're not promoting, you're not helping me help you. Right? See, the church of Pergamum 
was bargaining with Jesus. And, ult- and ultimately, even their martyrdom could be said that, that is a, they held it as a bargaining chip, saying, Jesus, do you remember that we almost lost our lives for you? Do you remember Antipas? He was my good friend. He, he died for you. Now you owe me this. To this compromising church, and to us, who if, if I'm honest and if hopefully you're honest, we compromise in our faith and bargain with Jesus all the time, you would expect Jesus to end the letter in verse 16, saying this, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This sounds very threatening. And you would expect Jesus to end the letter here and, and everybody to scour in fear. But he doesn't do that. If you remember um, the name of our series, Jesus, um, if you remember the name of our series, Jesus ends this letter with a postscript. P.S. I love you. You know why? Here's why. Because Jesus knows that though fear gets our attention, only love changes our heart's direction. Did you catch that? Jesus knows that though fear gets our attention, if he ended it with verse 16, it will get our attention. But only love can change our heart's direction, which leads us to our last point. What is the motivation for the church of Pergamum and for us as Cornerstone to not compromise and bargain with Jesus in the extraordinary and in the mundane? And the answer is simple. The invitation to feast. We are invited to feast. Now, this is where things can get a little weird, but just as a reminder that what is weird for us today may not have been weird for the people back then. Um, Starting in verse 17, Jesus encourages the church with the promise of three things. Hidden manna, white stone, and a new name. Hidden manna, white stone, and a new name. And the first time you read this, you're like, what is going on? Um, Let me briefly explain these three things separately and what they mean as a whole. Manna was heavenly bread. And it symbolized a banquet. And Jesus here is promising to those at Pergamum to give them hidden manna. That if you hold fast to his name and abstain from the feast and worship to the emperor and to idols and sexual, sexual indulgence, he has a better feast prepared for you. Essentially, he's saying this. You might miss out on food, entertainment, and social status for refraining to participate in pagan worship. But press on because you're invited to an exclusive banquet that is literally out of this world. See, it's hidden because it's not here yet. We can't see it with our eyes. But Jesus is saying, just let your imagination run. It's going to be awesome. Secondly, he mentions a white stone. In ancient times, a white stone symbolized acquittal from a jury. If you are found innocent, the jury would vote with a white stone. If you were found guilty, they would vote with a black stone. Interestingly, interestingly, the white stone was also a way to invite someone to an exclusive event. If you received the white stone, that was your invitation, and you would show it to the bouncer or the person at the gate or a person at the house and say that you were worthy to be here. It was your ticket to places. Thirdly, the new name. People in ancient times were given new names during a monumental day in their life. See, if you achieved something great, 
you could be renamed. And the name would carry a hope and a purpose, or it would carry a meaning that other people would hope your life to become. I was the son, the first son in my family, and in Korean culture, being the firstborn son is actually a big deal because it's a guarantee that the family line will continue. So my parents took a long and hard thought, thought very hard on what to name their firstborn born son, and they named me Day Yu Kim. Day means big, giant, enormous, right? You is just a filler word. It just sounded nice, right? So they put it phonetically, nice-sounding word, you. But Kim means gold. So if you put the two names, two things together, it's like big, gigantic gold. And a closer American expression would be jackpot. We've hit jackpot. He's our, we struck gold, right? But the hope is that by naming me that, my life will be defined by the very hopes and a new identity that I did not give myself. See, a new name signifies a new purpose in one's life, whether you've achieved something great or whether your parents or someone before you named you with that hope. Now, why is Jesus offering these three things to the church of Pergamum and even to us Cornerstone today? How are these three things a sign of his love and a motivation to be faithful and to turn our heart's direction to not compromise? Here's how. Because these three things, you know what they do? They capture the picture of Jesus who is faithfully, restlessly, and relentlessly at work in our lives to prepare us for the feasts to come. Because, brothers and sisters, this feast that Jesus promises is not a regular feast. It's a wedding feast. See, it's the wedding celebration of Jesus Christ. And we and you and the church is invited to this feast by the white stone. And he's the one that makes sure that we'll get there. And he gives us this white stone not because of anything we've done. He doesn't declare us righteous because we've done anything righteous. But he gives us the white stone because he was righteous and says, I refuse to go in into my Father's presence before you go in. You are worthy. You are blameless. Meaning that we've made it into the guest list not not by anything we've done, but only because Jesus Without fail, every time we sin and we compromise today, he is the faithful one who intercedes on our Father's behalf. He declares us blameless. And here's the thing. If you've ever received a wedding invitation, or if if you've ever made a wedding invitation, there are usually three names in there. The bride, the groom, and the guest. Guess which one the church is. The church is not a guest. Friend, you are not a guest. You are the bride of Christ. See, this feast that awaits you is a celebration of Christ waiting to bestow on you a new name. His name. It's a celebration of Christ. Yes, and amen. But his declaration of eternal commitment to you and to you and me and to us, a cornerstone as a church, an unfaithful, compromising bride whom he paid the cost to cleanse us of our sins and gives us a new name that only the redeemed know. It's interesting that when brides get engaged, 
it's normal for their daily routine to start changing a little bit. They start eating healthier and um, they give up their burgers for a salad and um, they give up carbs for, for um, you know, veggies and they give up that Coke and they change it to Coke Zero so that the calories don't add up and they start watching their figure and they got a gym membership and they're exercising more because in a couple months, they need to fit in their wedding dress and they need to look stunning for the world to see and for, for the groom to see. So with tomorrow in mind, see, if you know you're getting married, your daily life changes, your mundane changes. Likewise, for grooms, we don't, I did not go into such extreme uh, lifestyle changes for my wedding, but likewise, grooms also have a lifestyle change if you know you're getting married. See, nobody told me that um, if you wanted to buy a wedding ring, um, the three-month rule will not apply to seminary full-time students um, because after five years of saving, it was not enough to buy a wedding ring. I thought, and if, but you know what changed? Throughout my um, grad school, I had always saved here and there, $50 here, $100 here, to go back to Argentina, because that's where I grew up, and to experience the land of meat once again before the Lord calls me home. And I was saving $50 and $100 a day each day. Uh, Towards the end of my seminary years, I met this godly, fun, thoughtful, gentle girl. And as much as I desired to go back to Argentina and eat meat again, (laughs) see, it does not compare to the desire that drowned my heart and said, I need to make this woman mine. So all the money I had saved for five years that that fit in a jar went towards this little shiny, tiny rock now in the fingers of my wife. And the only regret is that if I had known that the money would go towards our wedding, I would have saved so much more. My lifestyle would have changed so much more drastically because it's not for a trip. It's for my spouse. It's not for my experience, but it's because, it's because I'm loved and I want to express this. See, your life changes in the moment you know you're about to get married. Well, church, we are still yet to be married consummate our marriage with Jesus Christ. See, the motivation to not compromise in our faith and remain faithful in extraordinary and in the mundane today comes from knowing that Jesus, our faithful groom, is working in our lives and has made us into his bride. In other words, Jesus signed that paper that says you're legally married, but you have yet to be married to him. Walk down the aisle. And now I know it may be a little weird to, for, for some guys to admit that we are the bride of Christ, but that is the awkward and yet truth, the gospel truth. We are the bride getting ready to celebrate our wedding day. But that is the gospel truth. See, we are the bride of Christ, deeply, deeply loved by a groom who while we were in our sin, he gave away his life savings so that he could make us his. And it cost him his whole life. And when we're consumed by this amazing love, I can't believe I'm going to meet my groom. Amazing love. How could it be that Jesus is patiently waiting on the altar to marry me, you, the church, 
When we get that, church, we, in worship, we surrender every area of our life. We stop bargaining with Jesus because we're not trying to get something because we already have. If you get this, if you get that Christ is faithful, that he doesn't run away, that he doesn't look over the shoulder and look at, at his bride and say, ooh, never mind. Christ is not our runaway groom. Church, do you trust that? I pray that you do. And as you see his faithfulness, may you put your life on call for him. Not bargaining, but surrendering it all at his will. Brothers and sisters, may you in extraordinary and in the mundane, in every moment of your life, set your eyes on our faithful groom who does not abandon us but is waiting for us at the altar where we as the bride shall shine like in bright array with our tears all forever wiped away. When there will be rejoicing on that great day at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. So church, look to Christ who gives us a new name, signifying that we're forever one with him, that no man or angel or demon or sin or death will ever, ever, and ever dare to tear us apart. Let's pray. Jesus, you are waiting in heaven for us. And as we prepare on this earth and as we adorn ourselves with good works, Lord, you know that they're imperfect and they're stained and Father, we don't know what we're doing sometimes and we forget how to live a Christian life and yet you look over and you say that we are beautiful. Father, we pray that as a church we may not compromise that we may remember that you as our groom gave your life and your life savings and yourself to us. And Father, we don't have to bargain with you because you give it all freely. And as we live forward to the day of our wedding, that we are invited, that our name is on that white stone. Jesus, even better, our name is graven in your hands. Lord, may we be encouraged and run this faith this life of faith, without compromise, but in surrender. Jesus, take us there. Help us put our life on call so that we can see you walk down the aisle and consummate this marriage of faith. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God for the faithful preaching of his word. Let us continue to worship him and and contemplate what he's given to us as we rise and sing to him, our precious cornerstone, our sure foundation, for he's all to us. Let us rise.